0: go. The podcast platform of the Finagolists by Leopold Lambert. Today, organizing the resistance against the privatization of cities with Elizabeth Alexander. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Alexander, who is uh, vice president of politics for uh, the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, uh, ten, ten, ten to one, sorry, um, in, uh, in San Francisco. And uh, this will be the first um, the first podcast made uh, uh, in the Bay Area, uh, the first of a, a small series. And uh, the conversation we're going to have. Today with Elizabeth is uh, is um, uh, simultaneously specific to San Francisco and also and also uh, talking of uh, about larger issues in the in the United States but also in the Western world in general uh, that we can mostly sum up by the uh, by the pro- the urban process of gentrification. Um, hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Um, so maybe just to, before we jumped into the the uh, gentrification aspect of uh, of the conversation, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, with uh, SEIU in particular uh, these days?
1: Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so SEIU Local 1021 represents over 54,000 members in the public sector. Uh, in all of Northern California. About a third of our membership are here in the city and county of San Francisco. We represent uh, 12,000 members who work for the city and county of San Francisco and uh, about 3,000 nurses in our public health system. And we also represent 17 nonprofit workers who work in various government-funded nonprofits throughout uh, the city and county of San Francisco. And like everyone in this country right now, we are looking at... Uh, the the role of um, of wealth inequality and uh, how do we solve the problems of wealth inequality in our country and, and start to rebuild our democracy? And w- through that lens we are, not just fighting for good contracts for our workers, although that's um, obviously paramount and important to what we're doing. We're also looking at how do we lift up um, the wages and the living conditions of, um, of everybody living in our cities. And so we're working on things like uh, staffing levels and um, rebuilding the and re, uh, reinvesting in public services. In increasing the minimum wage to $15 in San Francisco, and dealing with uh, mass gentrification uh, of our cities, and asking the question of, you know, um, are we if we're creating jobs, who who are we creating those jobs for? If we are talking about housing, uh, you know, does our workforce are, is our workforce able to afford housing, and where? And uh, looking through a lens of um, Of equality and uh, economic and social equality for everybody. Mm -hmm.
0: And I I suppose the the minimum wage uh, raise is something that uh, we can also uh, observe as a struggle uh, in all over the United States. And uh, with uh, recent massive strikes from, uh, for example, the fast food, uh, the fast food workers were being paid, uh, I think, as an average something like. 7.5 dollars an hour or something like that
1: yeah absolutely so uh some of the largest chunks of minimum wage workers in our country are in the fast food industry or working at a large in large retail like target walmart um and for a long time that has been the uh Kind of an ignored section of the workforce, and yet a growing section of the workforce. And our um, our support and our involvement in the fast food workers is really to lift up the the fact that you know nobody can survive on these low low wages. Mm-hmm. And we have to um, we have to build power for workers. We have to build um, you know uh, an economy that works for everybody. And one of the ways that the economy works or does not work for everybody is on what are the wages and what are people earning and what are people taking home. And in addition to minimum wage, there's also a lot of issues around wage theft. Eighty-five percent of uh, fast food workers experience wage theft where they're not even being paid for the the work that they're performing. They're not being paid overtime. They're not being given their breaks. They're being asked to clock out and continue to do work that is unpaid. And uh, this is – for a long time, uh, this has been – uh, these have been terrible working conditions that are kind of isolated to certain industries, but we're seeing them creeping into every single kind of work. Uh, work in this country is becoming more precarious. Uh, workers are having more difficult time finding uh, full-time work, uh, work with benefits um, everywhere in our economy, even in the public sector. Uh, about a third of our, our workers actually uh, are what's are classified as something called as needed. Or temporary, Mm. and even though they're clearly not like there's a there's a clear need for the kind of work to be done. There's no such thing as you know a a temporary clerk. Mm. You know we need we need clerks at our public hospitals to be working full time. Um, We need them 24 hours a day. So uh, to have people who are um, you know being uh, people who are working maybe 15 hours a day and then, or 15 hours a week, and then having another person coming in, doing another 15 hours, another person in coming, doing 15 hours, means it's harder and harder and harder for workers to make ends meet. People are having to work multiple jobs. And the kind of the symbol of the fast food workers that is resonating with so many people is that these conditions are creeping into everywhere. And so lifting up what have long been kind of the bottom of the economy wages and working conditions, and lifting those up is like you know these need to be good jobs. We need good jobs for everybody. There's been this myth that oh, it's been it's you know it's, it's young people, it's you know teenagers, but it's not. It's it's families mm-hmm. and it's um, you know middle middle aged workers as well.
0: Mm-hmm um well uh and this this precarious uh, population is uh also the population we are going to talk about today because it is the exact same population that um that finds itself uh uh a, a long time quite kicked out of their places where they where they live uh, in the city so uh, I think that's that's the thing that um gonna talk about today the uh, the gentrification uh, uh that that happens uh in the united states in uh, at a at a very very uh, uh fast uh fast uh, pace and in a uh, in, in few years the the rents can double in a given neighborhood and um and obviously as an architect that's that's something extremely interesting as well because uh, uh gentrification has very much an architecture that's proper to its uh, uh to its process i mean just before coming to talk to you i just i just looked at this building that's uh, that's particularly symptomatic of, of of this and looks like a a small fortress for uh uh <laughs> a middle class uh, uh uh that that probably recently moved to the neighborhood um, in the in the speci- that's something that's something we see in in many cities, but in the specific case of San Francisco, there's something particularly uh, 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 interesting, I suppose, to to look at um, in uh, the way gentrification unfolds itself. Is that one of the main actor uh, of this gentrification process is uh, uh, the tech industries that uh, I mean, uh, with uh, all those industries in uh, Palo Alto and some of them in downtown, downtown San Francisco. Um, and there's been something that recently uh, came out that is uh, a sort of privatization of public transportation in the presence of those uh, uh, what's been named uh, Google Google buses, uh, where, as you will, I'm sure you will tell us uh, along along the along the course of this of this bus that basically uh, uh, gets uh, tech employees. From from those gentrified neighborhoods uh, to to their to their companies, there is a there is a an alarming uh, rate of eviction and 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 gentrification, uh, violent gentrification happening. Can can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what this is all about?
1: Absolutely. So a few years ago, the um you know the in the kind of the lowest points of the recession, the. Mayor of San Francisco made a deal with landowners and with uh with tech companies in the central area of our city the mid market area to quote unquote revitalize the city by bringing tech companies who are either threatening to leave or uh, were curious about coming in uh to and it's a big tax free zone in in the middle of our city and these um, these there was no consideration of, okay, we're going to bring in a huge, thousands and thousands and thousands of new workers who currently don't live in San Francisco, and somewhere somewhere they're going to have to be housed. And at the same time that, that was happening, just 45 minutes down south in Silicon Valley, Google, Yelp, um, Apple, and a series of other uh, huge, huge tech companies were expanding their workforce and looking for a place to house them. And they chose to house them in the very, very dense city of San Francisco. And the way that they have structured this is that they have created their own private bus system that's only available to their workers and their own tech workers. They're not available to the cooks. They're not available to the janitors. They're not available to the security guards. Those folks have to get to their work on their own. But they have decided that they're going to um, partner with – with bus systems and with uh, landowners to bus thousands and thousands of workers. We understand it's about 34,000 workers that get bused uh, in these private bus systems that use our public infrastructure, that San Francisco has spent a lot of money and a lot of time, and city planners have spent a lot of money and a lot of time creating uh, transit corridors, public transportation corridors. These private buses park and use our public bus stops, and the rates of Um, evictions and the the highest rents in the city uh, are right around those bus stops. And if you go on Craigslist or you go on any other, you know, um, rent service, you'll find that they will advertise, you know, Google bus stops within three blocks or tech bus bus stops within two blocks. There's clearly a a partnership between the tech companies and between landlords and land speculators, buying up properties at alarming rates, evicting people at really high rates, and jacking up their rents um, al- along these uh, used to be public transportation corridors and now increasingly private transportation corridors.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that you're you're currently organizing some actions against that. Uh, I, I suppose. Uh not everything can be talked about because it's kind of ongoing but uh from what you can talk about could you tell us absolutely what's going
1: on? well several organizations have you know who have been working on evictions uh uh defense they call it de- eviction defense um, for years have really focused and have blossomed around the eviction rights along these bus stops, have been doing blockades of the buses, have been doing different actions on the buses. Our union has um, partnered with people from the Sierra Club and with the Sierra Club, with um, the League of Pissed Off Voters, the Harvey Milk LGBT uh, Democratic Club, and other uh, community activists to actually file a, a CEQA complaint. That's the California um, Environmental Quality Act. And that act says that any private or public um, program that's going to inc- that's going to impact the environment has to be gone- go through a formal public review process before happening. And uh, so we filed a complaint saying that this huge private bus, um, you know, private mass transit program did not actually go through that process. And that went to the Board of Supervisors, the Board of Supervisors of San Francisco, many who admitted that they thought it was also illegal and didn't follow the process, still voted not to appeal, um, not to uphold the appeal. And uh, so now we're looking at what our next steps are. But there's this attitude amongst electeds in San Francisco that it doesn't matter if companies are breaking the law or not, that they're going to let them do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And the, the stakes, the tech gives a lot of money to, um, in supervisor races and, in, um, and plays, plays pretty big in elections here. And so people electors are very afraid to enforce the basic laws of San Francisco and of California and are letting tech kind of just do whatever they want. And, you know, our union is at the forefront saying you cannot just, you know, skirt the law. You cannot waive the law for these huge, very powerful, you know, very big corporations. And um, and then, you know, we're joining with a lot of the activists also to both amend the um, eviction laws at the state, making it more difficult to evict, uh, pushing um, legislation that will stop land speculation and make it more difficult and less um Financially, like take away all the financial incentives for land speculation. Um, We're actually pushing a ballot measure this that will hopefully be on the ballot this November. That would actually tax uh, land speculation at um, fifty percent of their profit rates if they uh, flip houses within a year. And uh, so we're looking at you know all the different ways we can deter people using direct action, the um, you know the formal complaint processes, and then the ballot. Um, and the legislative process to do everything that we can to uh, kind of call the question on these companies and to fight gentrification. Mm. But you know, it it takes all those things together to do yeah. it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's actually where I was going to head uh, now because I mean, you and I have been friends for a few years now, so I got to follow your uh, your different actions uh, mm-hmm. when you communicate about them, uh, and I'm I'm quite interested in the um, in the um, in the various means that it might take, some of them being uh, more at their at their scale of uh, legal legal actions, mm-hmm. as you just described, but uh, some others being a little bit more uh, direct actions. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so I was um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, the various actions that were undertook against the bus the buses themselves, but mm-hmm. also the to uh, stop evictions on on the mm-hmm. field itself, not at a legal. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, scale.
1: Mhm. Absolutely. So, um, one of the uh, one of the attacks on the bus privatization has been directly related to the fact that the all these employees are getting their buses for free, right? Google employees, Yelp employees, they just get on the bus, they, you know, a 45-minute ride right to their work for free, while the rest of us are, you know, paying substantial prices to, you know, to the public bus system to get um, to get to work and uh, you know, it's really the, the poorest San Franciscans that are most reliant on public transportation. So there's been a direct link, and uh, Google actually and Twitter have actually put up money to uh, as, a, as a direct result of these um, bus blockades where people, like, just, you know, surround the buses, hold up maps of the evictions, and call on the corporations to pay their taxes and to do the right thing. And we don't think that, you know, tens of millions of dollars is enough because they have made hundreds of millions of dollars off the tax cuts uh, from San Francisco and for using our public transportation infrastructure for their um, private buses. But it's, you know, they've felt like they had to react to us, right? So they've provided... Uh, free, youth pa- free youth for um, passes for all um, people under 18 in San Francisco. So youth ride for free on the, the bus system. And they're also pushing for seniors and dis- people with disabilities also to ride free on the mini bus system. And, uh, you know, but we also we need to rebuild our infrastructure in the public system. And so people are the the real demand is you know pay your taxes, pay your fair share like it's not about a handout here and there on the things mm-hmm. that you want to give the real uh, at the same time that we're kind of uh, uh, seeing our public services underfunded the real The real call is for uh, these large large corporations to pay their fair share and to pay their taxes like they should
0: mm-hmm. and and I suppose those uh, what you call hand hands out and uh, i mean uh, those, those actions. That uh, I mean, it, it is nice to know that every every uh, 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 young uh, uh, like teenagers and kids in in San Francisco don't don't get to pay the bus. But so it doesn't change the problem to the fact that uh, there's a, a, a rampant uh, um, a privatization of, of public services uh, in general in in particular in the United States. But that's also something we can observe in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and at the end of the day, that's that's um, there's there is purposes and uh, goals that are absolutely not the same if you're a private actor or a public actor. So mm-hmm. I think that's also that's that's also what uh, constitutes a, the um, unescapable problem of of those uh, of this particular uh, mm-hmm. situation in San Francisco, right?
1: Yeah, and I also think it's it's important to note that. Uh, Silicon Valley, after the Koch Brothers is one of the largest funders of anti-union anti-pension measures throughout the country. So they have a different version of what our future should look like than what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and skirting the law and the government being afraid to enforce the law or feel like there's too big a political consequences for enforcing the law to us are big flags of what our future will look like if we don't if we don't take a stand and we don't um, you know make it really clear that this is about, not just a few handouts on the things that they want. They they want like trickle uh, trickle down economics doesn't work, yeah. um, <laughs> and that's basically what they're saying, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, if these tech companies in, come in, if we give them uh, tax breaks and all that kind of stuff, somehow all the rest of us are going to reap the economic benefits. Mm-hmm. That's clearly not true. In fact, um, average wages in San Francisco are going down, despite the fact that we've created 1,500 new millionaires just within our city border. And that there is more money being circulated on San Francisco than there ever has been. Wages are going down, and people are being pushed out very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose um, the um, those actions from the from the tech industry to to maybe allow uh, uh, like the youth or the the elderly to have access to the public to the transportation uh, uh, also is one aspect of what I would call maybe the. the the Bill Gates syndrome, maybe, mm-hmm. which is to which is uh, particularly uh, uh, active in the United States, which consists in in uh, in uh, prof- pr- pr- making profit out of a system and then uh, s- making some sort of redist- very symbolical and spectacular redistribution uh, mm-hmm. that would enhance uh, a sort of generosity uh, aspect of this gesture, when actually uh, the the problem at the very basis is created by the wealth that's been created by uh, uh, in, in this aspect, and I suppose that's that's also what this entire thing is uh, is hiding somehow isn't it
1: no that's exactly right in fact, in the twitter building when uh, in the building where Twitter is, that building has for a long time had you know been full union and it was union security guards on every floor in the building and throughout the entire building and when Twitter moved in, they insisted on having a non union Contractor, meaning that they insisted on having lower wages than what's paid for those security guards in the rest of the building, and that those workers don't have access to pl- collective bargaining agreements. Um, they are at will. They have no protections. Uh, I don't know what it's like for those workers, but um, if they are if they have any problems on the job, they have absolutely no recourse for trying to solve those problems. And Twitter insisted on having non-union um, security guards. On the floors where they operate in a building that, for a long time, has had union security guards, so that's kind of their whole attitude towards um, towards working people.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back a little bit to the gentrification and the, the evictions that are that characterize uh, mm-hmm. uh, this process. Uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I think I think you've been uh, you've been part of many actions that uh, was involving some sort of blockade of the mm-hmm. eviction. Can you tell us about that?
1: Uh, sure. So uh, the, there's been a lot of actions on um, different individuals that have, um, that are causing Ellis Act. In into California, one of the ways that you can just evict everybody is through what's called an Ellis Act eviction. And that allows um, an owner to go out of business and then change their mind or sell the building right afterwards. And this is, uh, being used by land speculators to just wipe out people who have been living in our, you know, in our city for years and years. And they're targeting seniors or targeting families. And we, um, there was a, a family in the northern part of the city, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lee, who uh, had lived in, in their apartment for over 30 years. They'd raised their children there. And uh, it, the community came together and Uh, blocked the building, blocked the sheriffs from coming to evict the family, and we were able to hold that, um, you know, that apartment for a few days. The family didn't end up having, being forced out, but um, a lot of the success that we've had is actually uh, beating foreclosures, and in the south part of the city, which is the only part of San Francisco that has single-family homes, the, it's, Also, largely African American, and uh, there have been that people. There's this myth that uh, that um, that foreclosures aren't happening in San Francisco, and it's absolutely not true. And what we were able to do, even you know, with you know community allies and with you know union members acting on their on our own, is even after people had been evicted. That we were able to to reoccupy people's homes, and you know, we were spending the night. Some of the workers work at work night shifts, so in order to make sure that you know to be there if the sheriffs came at night, we were able to um, to get workers to spend the night in these buildings and to uh, to camp out in inside the inside the homes and out front of the homes, and generate tens of thousands of phone calls to banks to force them to resell. The homes back to the original owners at um, at a reduced price, and we were able to save um, like 15 or 20 homes just through direct action alone, because the the courts aren't going to do it. These the auction like you. Homes are being auctioned off that aren't even like legally to be auctioned off, and there's no mechanism, there's no legal mechanism to stop it in California or really in the United States. So it's only been through direct action that we've been able to um, force land speculators to to return homes to families or the banks to resell homes to families, even after they've already been kicked out. We had someone who had been. Who had lost their home it was uh, and it was still vacant almost a year later, and we were able to through direct action alone to force the banks to resell um, the family home back to the original owners.
0: Hmm. And I, I suppose for the purpose of this conversation, I can also refer to um, on on uh, on the other side of the country in uh, in Florida the action of Max Remo and Take Back the Land. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with them, but um, who who would um, who would manage similarly to. Uh, um uh, help evicted family to to be able to go back either to their own house or to houses that have been evicted as well and that, mm-hmm. that are used like that as a as object of uh, financial speculations and um, it, in this case I think there's been some very interesting uh, work also on the, on the neighborhood itself and how you can create a community that's uh, standing in solidarity with uh, potential, Mm-hmm. uh evic uh, force evictions by the police or um and uh and th- it's interesting how there's this kind of um, social uh equilibrium that can be reached uh like that with the neighbors and, and in the creation of a sort of uh human human uh, uh uh community versus the, the, the sort of very uh, uh immaterial mm-hmm. uh speculative uh, finance um, and in addition of that there's uh, max ramo is is uh, often calling for um, the right of housing as a as a as a kind of an un- an un- un- undeniable human right which I, I think has some uh, interesting uh, uh, legal um, Complexity to it, but uh, one thing that I'm always thinking in that case is also that you you do need in a in a country that values itself so much for its uh, democratic functioning or something <laughs> like that. Uh, uh, there, at the end of the day, you still need an address to be able to vote. So, like, if you don't have an address, then it basically means you're not a citizen of this uh, glorious democracy. So, I think there's also something fundamentally wrong with that. Um, I don't know do you want do you, do you want to react to that or, or
1: yeah I mean I think that the idea of of uh, civil and uh, civil rights and human rights and economic rights are you know really kind of being called to the forefront in this country right now because if you can't earn enough money to meet your basic wages or basic needs right if you can't get housing if you are constantly in a precarious situation how can you possibly have a functioning democracy and you know at the same time we're seeing um you know what's going on in the federal government with uh you know with at the supreme court basically throwing out every kind of campaign finance law at the same time that they're trying to limit more and more the voice of working people and unions ability to um, to you know, to band workers together and to form unions, but also to try and influence politics. That the um, there's definitely a restructuring of our society going on, and unions have to be and are at the forefront of trying to rebuild this democracy. And I think that's also what the the um, you know governor you know Governor Quest always says. You know, let's shrink government to the size where you can drown it in a bathtub. And with you can't have a functioning democracy if people don't have if people's wages can't meet their basic needs. You can't have a functioning democracy if people are living two and three and four hours from their job and spending most of their day commuting to their job back and forth. You can't have a functioning democracy when uh, you know people are completely disconnected from each other and just trying to get their basic needs met. And um, you know, with the kind of the starving of government um, and the. Uh, you know, the tax, the tax structure really falling more and more on the middle class and the middle class, not really being middle class anymore, people being, you know, like, uh, you know, everyone really feels like they're working class right now, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and living on the edge. And, um, you know, I think this is, you know, the fight that we're engaged in is as much about wealth inequality, and and, um, as it is about, uh, you know, rebuilding our democracy. And, you know whether or not working people are going to have a voice in our future. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you, you, you evoked uh, the Supreme Court, which uh, gives me a transition for my next question because uh, uh, this week the the American Supreme Court ruled that it was now um, it was now possible for universities not to uh, uh, not to. Have an affirmative action uh, 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 policy, which was one of the one of the things that the civil rights movements had had been uh, had been brought to the American legislation, um, and the, the argument given for that is uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but basically it's it is it is based on the idea that uh, the American society is now a sort of post-racial uh, uh, society, <laughs> yeah. which um, yeah, which makes us laugh or cry. But uh, uh, clearly, there's a discrepancy with reality. And I think gentrification is p- a particular good example of that because um, I'm not fully sure how that works in, the, in San Francisco. But in New York, the, the gentrification is uh, extremely racialized because mm-hmm. it's, uh, uh, the, the gentrifi- gentrifying population is mostly white and the, the gentrified population is mostly uh, either African-American or, mm-hmm. or Hispanics uh and um could you tell me tell us maybe a little bit about this uh, racial aspect in the case of san francisco
1: absolutely so I think the the neighborhoods that are getting really hit the hardest are um the neighborhoods that are are mostly latino and mostly african american i think this is um you know, this is the standard attack that we've seen in this country since the 60s uh, with urban renewal. And this is every 10 years, it has a different name, and it looks different. Uh, in San Francisco, the Mission District, which is a tradi- no, traditionally Latino neighborhood, is being hit the hardest. There's also a privatization of the public housing um, going on, which is largely African- American, and. Uh, And then the the southeast side of our our city, which is, you know, actually middle-class African-American and middle-class Latino. And that's, you know, those are the places that are being absolutely hit the hardest. Our mayor has come out and said, oh, we need to create affordable housing for people making $145,000 a year. So there's also the other side of this that in San Francisco, 85% of San Franciscans cannot afford market rate. So while the the places getting hit the hardest are absolutely, um, you know, the the places that are most Latino and most African American, and the issue of African American displacement is just paramount with this uh, the privatization of the housing authority, um, and how that could change that could drop our African American population in half, if uh, it's done in the way that they've always done, um, and the, if it looked like other other privatization um, of nonprofit. And, uh, and kind of for-profit running of, of not of low-income housing looks. but um, we also have a situation where 85% of the San Franciscans can't you know can never move within San Francisco or have to leave. And the conversation about affordable housing is for people making $145,000, which is you know obviously a very uh, is a very white um, group of people and um, very, very male as well. And there's, you know, there's also a gentrification is also hitting the the most LGBT neighborhoods as well. So kind of the, as much as San Francisco prides itself in being this all inclusive city, this sanctuary city, uh, the the targeting of where you know they're going to bring in these new tech workers to live is in you know is the um, is the same as it is everywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Is who. Um, who does society think of or who does, who are the powers that be think of as the most movable and the most vulnerable and the easiest to you know easiest to kick out and you know it's focusing on immigrants and they're focusing on african americans and um it's you know it's 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 pretty bad and even in you know amongst our our workers some of them are middle class many of them are very very working class and I think that what is uh what our union is demanding and working with community groups to demand is that when the mayor and with you know any city official is talking about the need for job creation job creation for whom we have lots of folks in san francisco who are unemployed who are looking for a good full-time work and yet the the jobs that are being created are being created for folks who are not currently in san francisco are depending on thousands and thousands of people coming into our city and uh, at the same time, there's no job creation or no job training programs for um, you know folks needing a lift here in San Francisco. And so we're also kind of calling on the on the mayor, like, where is your where is your job creation for San Franciscans and for the diverse population in San Francisco?
0: And you you, you were talking about the um, uh, at, at the very beginning of what you just said, you you were talking about the the terminology that's used to to kind of. Uh, uh, put words on those uh, on those gentrification plan and that that would be a good way for me to also uh put the fault on on uh, on europe and france in particular because i i uh, I remember some signs in uh, uh on a several construction sites uh in uh in north of paris where there were there, uh, there's still a, a few a few uh, working class uh living there and the um, the kind of slogan that was that was put on it was Here we built a civilized space that's and no shame and the the, the and the, the the mayor is technically socialist and <laughs> it's it's quite it's quite a, amazing how people have uh uh no shame whatsoever um there there's one last thing that I would like to talk about with you because you've been also working a lot on that is um um uh, maybe to introduce this question, I should say that what we're talking about here is interesting in the way that it's um, um insisting on the city's sovereignties mm-hmm. and uh um, in contrast to the way we usually understand sovereignty, which is usually the nation- the nation states and I think there's a uh, uh, maybe the the only thing i ever agreed uh with uh, michael bloomberg the former mayor of new york is that there there needs to be uh, uh, maybe an increase of uh sovereignty at the city scale of uh uh of a given country and um and uh, so the, the the problem of the city as a as a sort of uh decisional institution is interesting and but there something some things that's particularly symptomatic of the problems that are currently going on with that. It's especially in the United States. The, the deals that the municipalities are making with banks and mm-hmm. uh, and how they how those deals are one uh, often top secret, top secret, mm-hmm. and which seems to be such a, a in complete contradiction with uh, with uh, the public, uh, the idea of public government. And uh, two, they're, um, they're incredibly uh, uh, detrimental to the city budget themselves. So mm-hmm. could you tell us more about that? Because it's, it's actually quite a, a comp, it's, it's simultaneously a complex topic. And also uh, at the end, the output is very simple in, in how it is uh, capitalism as usual.
1: Absolutely. And thank you for that question. The idea of municipal debt uh, is something that is hanging over all of our heads, the uh, and you know you just can look at Detroit. You can look at several cities here in in California to find out what is how is the structure of municipal debt being used as a way to surpass democracy and to make demands very neoliberal demands on municipalities, bypassing um, you know municipal and state law, in uh, and. The kind of parallel demonizing of public sector pensions as uh, at, at the same time to kind of cover this all this whole thing up so in uh, in Detroit, for example, Detroit went bankrupt, and everyone said it was about you know all the official people right the, the official analysis coming out of that was was because it was it was caused by the pensions, but it wasn 't if you look at the structure of the deal, it was about uh, their obligations to Uh, lots and lots and lots of debt. And we see that um, the same way happening in the city and county of San Francisco. We see this in Oakland. We see this throughout um, California. As a tax base goes down, governments, in order to try to provide the same level of service, take out loans. And they take out loans that they think are structured in a way that makes sense. And it turns out, just like with the mortgage crisis or any other kind of, you know, uh, the housing crisis in in the United States that affected obviously the global economy, that there's secret deals or there's secret uh, triggers that if uh, you miss a payment or if certain things happen, then the there's a balloon payment that comes about and these be this is an added pressure on on city governments and more and more and more we're seeing huge sections of our of the general fund, of our cities going to paying off debt. And this is also happening at the, at the state level in California where they want to take our rainy day fund and just set it aside to pay off debt. So it's more and more money going into banks. Now, what's um, what's criminal about this is that the uh, some of these side deals were created in a way that were linked to LIBOR and were linked to fraudulent... Deals um, that were manipulated by banks, and they were signed in uh, by by governments, not knowing that you know the interest rates were locked in um, by banks who knew that on the other end they were manipulating the interest rates. So, in you know, this has become a global scandal. Several, um, several. Countries and several uh, municipal agencies, in uh, whether it's water districts or utility districts or cities in themselves, or even retirement um, boards, have filed lawsuits against banks for illegally manipulating the interest rates. But uh, so far, the the courts have not really upheld these. There's like a contract, is a contract, as a contract. No matter what Wall Street does, it's never quite you know enough. And the rulings never quite come out. Um, on on the side of the working of working people in Oakland the there's something called the Goldman Sachs did what's called a, an interest rate swap where they took a deal that had a fluctuating interest rate took a side deal out and said well we're going to lock you into an interest rate that actually makes sense for you that's a better deal for you at the same and at the same time the banks knew that the federal reserve was going to drop their interest rates down to zero and They were were manipulating the uh, international interest rates to be very high, and the city of Oakland is paying, you know, $35 million more than they would have paid otherwise on bonds that have already been paid off. So the principal of the bond has already been paid off. They're stuck with this interest rate for the next, like, 15 years. And... In any other scenario, this would be this would be considered fraudulent. This would be consider you know, this would be um, uh, this would be something that that city attorneys would want to go after. And yet, the banks come back and say, "Well, you can file a lawsuit, or you can do all these different things, but we're going to screw you on your bond rating." So there's they have these hammers that they can hold over municipalities' heads, saying, "Well, we'll affect your bond rating. We won't give you. We won't loan any more money to you." And so governments again are in the situation where they're afraid to enforce the law, they're afraid to to um, to file lawsuits or afraid to uh, push back on these banking institutions that uh, are really threatening the um, them with bankruptcy. And with bankruptcy, the um, you know what what the what the federal court ruled in Detroit was that your first obligation is to is to Wall Street, not to not to the people. Not to your employees, nothing. It's you know, Wall Street is your first, mm-hmm. is, is your is you know where the where your largest obligation is. Well, and, and, and
0: mm-hmm. maybe I'm sorry, just to, to to maybe explain a little bit for uh, maybe non-American listeners. Right now, Detroit City Council have been uh, pretty much stripped of their power, and uh, and right now, Detroit's. Uh, uh, um, every decisions that uh, uh, every municipal decisions uh, that happens for Detroit are taken by a sort of uh, uh, economic pilot or uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how they call that but uh, some someone who has absolutely no uh, nothing to um, nothing to to do with their, with Detroit's inhabitants uh, electoral choice or or uh, political uh, uh Favor—it's—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit what we saw in Italy in uh, 2010, if my memory is right, uh, when when Mario Monti was was named prime minister as without being elected in any way, but uh, 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 to kind of uh, to kind of uh, act at the economical um, uh, level of, of of the country. Uh, so it's 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 interesting to see that it's. Uh, uh, I mean that's when that's when it becomes very clear that there's pretty really no more mm-hmm. uh, uh, democratic power involved in this kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, course.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're all everyone's looking at Detroit because we feel like Detroit is, you know, that kind of Wall Street's experiment where how they can take over a city and just run it how they want to sell off all the public infrastructure, mm-hmm. sell, sell off. the
0: arts, sell yeah. the parks, sell the
1: yeah. And all in the name of paying Wall Street what they're what they're owed.
0: All right. Well, uh, uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. I know your time is precious. We we are recording the, uh, uh, this uh, conversation at the uh, Ciu uh, offices directly, so that you can go back to work. <laughs> uh, uh, very important work. So, thank you very very much for taking the time to talk to us
1: today. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.